science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. In 1928, Henry Ford made a deal with the Brazilian government that in exchange for 9% of the profits generated allowed him to establish a town in the Amazon that he named Fordlandia. How was this town supposed to generate profits? Next, this German scientist's twin daughters both died young in childbirth, and his son was executed for his part in a failed assassination of Hitler. Who was he? If you know the answer to either of those questions, you give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text to 514-800. That is also where you can address your questions or comments about uh, anything in science that uh, tickles your mind. And I also have a question that is left over from last week. So we will try to deal with that as well. In a study in Scarlet, which was the first Sherlock Holmes story, a man takes revenge for the murder of his loved one by using a poison that is described as an alkaloid extracted from some South American arrow poison. What alkaloid would that be? It's not mythical. Uh, It's a real thing. So we want to know what alkaloid is referred to in the first ever Sherlock Holmes story, which is a study in Scarlet. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we try to separate myth from facts for you, sense from nonsense. And I remind you uh, once more, as I did last week, and I will do once more next week, that our annual Trottier Public Science Symposium is coming around on the 13th and 14th of this month, September. And this year, the topic that we're going to address is uh, the use and abuse of science in sports. And we'll have uh, on the first night a couple of very interesting speakers uh, speaking about um, uh, nutrition in sports and drugs in sports. And on the second night, I will sit down with Dick Pound, the former head of the World Doping Agency, and we will have... uh, fascinating, I think, interview about uh, the problems of doping in sports. And this is something that is uh, certainly uh, in the news all the time uh, when it comes to the Olympics, when it comes to the uh, NFL, comes to basketball, soccer. Uh, There are always stories about uh, athletes attempting to improve their performance, doping, uh, in some uh, illegal way. So I think it's going to be uh, fascinating. Uh, And uh, so, of course, uh, we invite you. The uh, whole affair takes place at McGill, Moise Hall, which is uh, in the main building, in the arts building. 
and we would um, ask you just to register ahead of time. There's no obligation to anything once you register. It is only so that we have an idea of the number of people coming. And the way to do that is to go to our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS, and you will immediately see the description of the symposium, get all the details, get all the times, and all you have to do is click the button so that we get some sort of an idea about uh, uh, how many people we're going to uh, be welcoming. All right, so that's uh, it for the Trotje Symposium on September 13th and September 14th. This morning, I asked a question on the uh, trivia show, which I thought uh, would generate some interesting uh, answers, uh, but uh, they did get the correct answer. The question that I asked was about the uh, percent of oxygen in the air at the top of Mount Everest, and I explained that the atmospheric pressure at the top of Mount Everest is uh, only 0.3 atmospheres, that is about one-third of that at uh, uh, sea level, and I wanted to know what the concentration of oxygen was up in the mountains, because of course we all know that it's much harder to breathe as you go to higher elevations. And um, the correct answer, which I think surprises a lot of people, is that the concentration of oxygen is exactly the same at the top of Mount Everest as it is at sea level. It is about 21%. Air is about 21% oxygen, uh, about 80% nitrogen, and 1% uh, other gases like argon and carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide in the air I think uh, you may be surprised to know is much, much less than 1% in terms of concentration. But obviously there would be no, no life without it because carbon dioxide is what makes photosynthesis uh, possible. So how come that even though the concentration of oxygen is the same at the top of Mount Everest as it is at, at sea level, how come it's so much more difficult to breathe? Well, because the amount of oxygen in a unit volume that is in one breath will be much less than what it is at ground level, even though the concentration is, is the same. It's just that the molecules are much, much further apart. The air is much less dense, but the ratio of oxygen molecules to nitrogen molecules is unaltered. It's still the same. So that if, if let's say, you had one cubic meter of air at sea level, 21% of the oxygen, 21% uh, of all the molecules in there would be oxygen. It would be exactly the same if you had one cubic meter of air at the top of Mount Everest, still 21% of all the molecules contained in that volume would be oxygen, but there are many fewer molecules in that volume altogether. So that is why it is so much harder to breathe, because you're getting in less oxygen. Now, that also brings up, you know, interesting possibility of the athletes who train at higher altitudes so that they can perform better at lower altitudes. Why would they do this? Because if you're training at a higher altitude, your body senses that you're getting less oxygen. 
and it tries to counter that by generating more of a hormone called erythropoietin, which causes the bone marrow to try to make more red blood cells. And it is the red blood cells that carry oxygen. So the idea is that training at a, a higher elevation forces the body to make blood that is going to be able to carry around more oxygen. And that, of course, is a good thing because for your muscles to function, uh, they need to have a source of, uh, of oxygen. And many athletes, Olympic athletes, especially long-distance runners and, and bicyclists, will train at higher elevation so that they will have a richer oxygen content in their blood at low elevation and they will perform better. There are even devices uh, called altitude tents that can be used at ground level. And this is a tent that you um, put up in your house and um, you sleep in it and it's uh, connected to a device that will remove some of the oxygen from the air. And it does that because it has a type of activated carbon in it, um, which has tiny, tiny holes in it that can absorb oxygen and uh, let nitrogen pass through. So you are going to be breathing less oxygen. Your body is going to uh, try to adapt, generate uh, uh, more red blood cells. And there are studies that, that show that um, uh, you can, in fact, improve performance by sleeping in these altitude tents. Uh, but uh, there are also studies that show that uh, that is not the case. <laughs> so hard to know about the tents, but training at high altitude uh, does work. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mysteries solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. So we got some correct answers. I like that. Uh, first of all, about uh, Henry Ford and Fordlandia. Uh Kathy had a correct answer to that one. So how was that town supposed to generate profits? By producing rubber from the latex of rubber trees that were planted. The town became home to some 3,000 workers and their families who had to live by strict rules imposed by Ford. Alcohol, tobacco, and even games like playing soccer were forbidden. And Ford even tried to impose his diet of whole wheat bread, oatmeal, and canned peaches on the population. Eventually, the people revolted against the harsh regulations, and the um, rubber that Ford needed for his tires was never produced in significant amounts because the rubber trees had been planted too close together and uh, they were diseased. And uh, in uh, 1934, the town was abandoned and Ford tried again in an area where the trees would grow better, uh, some 40 kilometers away. But that was also abandoned when synthetic rubber came on the market. Interestingly enough, most of the buildings uh, looks like a little American colony still stand there in the middle of the uh, Amazon. 
and uh, the Brazilian government has taken it over and uh, there are some people uh, living there. The water tower that was sort of the hallmark of the town uh, still stands. So that was uh, not one of Ford's uh, better ideas, although I suppose he had no way of predicting that synthetic rubber would uh, uh come on the market and uh, destroy the market for natural rubber. And uh, also had a correct answer to the other question about the alkaloid that is mentioned in the study in Scarlet, the first Sherlock Holmes story. And that alkaloid is curare. So get ready for a trip to the jungles of South America in the late 16th century. Monkeys are jumping within the trees when suddenly one of them emits a shrill cry. He manages to jump to another tree and then to one more before falling to the ground, an arrow protruding from his side. The poison was not a particularly potent one. The Indians will call it a three-tree poison, as opposed to a stronger formulation, which would be termed two-tree or the ultimate, a one-tree dose. Sir Walter Raleigh watched and was dumbstruck by the quickness of death. He asked to examine the mixture with which the natives had coated their arrows. He took a speck of the urari, as the stuff was called by the natives, and rubbed it between his fingers. Sir Walter must have had a small unhealed cut because he immediately became dizzy and promptly collapsed as the poison entered his bloodstream. Luckily for him, it was only a three-tree dose. Raleigh learned the meaning of urari the hard way. In the language of the natives, it meant, he to whom it comes falls. He also learned that some tribes put the poison under their fingernails when it came handy during hand-to-hand combat. There were stories about how the lethal brews were secretly mixed. Tales were told about how the oldest women of the tribe would prepare the mixture in closed huts, and if after two days the fumes had not killed them, the mixture would be judged too weak to use, and another batch would be started. The active ingredient in the preparation turned out to be the root or stem of a certain species of climbing vine, known today as condodendron tomentosum. Sir Walter took a sample back to Europe, where it was given the name curare. Unfortunately, not much attention was paid to the substance until 1812, when Charles Waterton realized that if the right dose were used, muscle relaxation without death could be achieved. Curare came to be used in the treatment of lockjaw, infantile paralysis, and even epilepsy. It wasn't until 1844 that the mechanism of action of curare began to be understood. The French physiologist Claude Bernard experimented with frogs and found that curare blocked nerve impulses from the brain to the muscles and had the effect of relaxing the muscles to the point of limpness. Even the muscles that controlled breathing could be made to relax to the point that the animal appeared to be dead. If the dose was just right, the effect would soon wear off and recovery was complete. One might say that the animal had experienced a living death. An actual living death 
was a great fear among Europeans and Americans of the 19th century. This fear was dramatized by Edgar Allan Poe in his classic tale, The Premature Burial. That story, written in 1844, just at the time that stories about the effects of curare began to circulate. There already had been various accounts of people being mistakenly declared dead and buried only to wake up inside the coffin. There had even been stories about unearthed coffins containing skeletons with hands clutching at the lid from the inside. Some people went as far as having elaborate safety mechanisms built into their coffins so that they could sound the alarm should they be prematurely buried. Poe's tale of his own premature burial is eerie and haunting. The reader shares his panic as he comes to from a condition of catalepsy inside a wooden enclosure enveloped in the smell of fresh earth. We identify with his horror-filled loud screams as he realizes that his worst fear has come true. The screams, however, do bring help. He is brought out of his reverie by reassuring hands. It seems he had not been buried at all, just taken refuge from a storm on a docked boat where he had gone to sleep in a rather cramped wooden bunker. The boat carried fertilizer, hence the smell. The barrier was not real, but the panic was. Did a knowledge of curare contribute to Poe's obsession with death and to his and others' fear of a premature burial? Very possibly, since the work with curare had shown that states which could be mistaken for death really did exist. When the active ingredient in the climbing vine was isolated and identified as tubocurinine, modern medicine began to find a use for it. It was found to counter the effects of some muscle-contracting poisons such as strychnine and the tetanus toxin and has come into widespread use as a muscle relaxant during surgery. It has greatly facilitated abdominal surgery by preventing the muscles from becoming stiff and almost unpenetrable. New synthetic derivatives of curare have been developed. These, such as pancuronium, better known as pavilon, are more potent and can be used in smaller doses. Side effects are more limited. Larger doses can, of course, cause paralysis and death. Indeed, in 1975, there was just such an outbreak in respiratory paralysis in a veterans hospital in Ann Arbor, Michigan. In a period of six weeks, 35 patients had a fatal or near-fatal cardiopulmonary arrest. All had been on intravenous lines. The FBI investigated and found pavulon in the tissues of all five patients who had died. Two Filipino nurses were accused of murder and attempted murder. The prosecution claimed that they were trying to dramatize the need for more nurses. Imelda Marcos paid for part of their defense, saying that the charge had been trumped up to keep Filipino nurses out of the country. Whatever the truth, the fact of the matter is that nurses served only a few months in jail when they were released by mysterious judgment of irregularities during the trial. Some people say that Imelda had threatened to make trouble over American bases in the Philippines. Apparently, in this case, Curare had paralyzed the strong arm of the U.S. And there's one more addendum to this little story. An important one for us here in Montreal because the use of curare in surgery was pioneered right here 
at what at that time was called the Queen Elizabeth Homeopathic Hospital, still exists today as the Queen Elizabeth Clinic. And the doctor was Harold Griffiths, who was really the first surgeon to use an injected form of curare to paralyze muscles to make abdominal surgery easier. You listen to the Dr. Joe Show. Life's everyday mysteries solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Uh, one question still outstanding. I wanted to know about the German scientists whose twin daughters both died in childbirth. Unusual. And his son was executed for his part in a failed assassination of Hitler. Who was he? Give you a clue. Often called the father of quantum mechanics. So who was this German scientist who had such tragedies with his children? And let me throw another one at you. What drug was discovered thanks to an observation that cows fed moldy sweet clover died? A drug, the discovery of which was based on the observation that cows died after being fed moldy sweet clover. What drug was that? If you know, you give us a call at 514-790-800 or text to 514-800. I think I mentioned to you last time this recall of eye drops uh, that uh, were contaminated with uh, bacteria. And uh, the sort of the the real tragic uh, facet of that story is that the eye drops had no business being sold in the first place because they had no documented evidence for being any good. And uh, supposedly they contain a substance called MSM, methane, that was somehow supposed to enhance nutrient absorption into the eye. This is just not, not so. So people who did buy those eye drops and... Uh, unfortunately, got some contaminant in their eye, uh, got it without any hope of ever having any benefit at all because it's just bogus when it comes to putting it into eye drops. But I thought I would tell you a little bit, though, about MSM because it, it's sort of, uh, you know, it, it's an interesting story. I mean, I'm always wary when some product claims to help anything you know, and everything that ails you. Relieve stress, relieve constipation, asthma, emphysema, arthritis, muscle cramps, back pain, varicose veins, food allergies, acne. Also helps with hair loss, fragile nails, migraines, ulcers, and carpal tunnel syndrome. My antennae go up even further when I hear terms like detoxify and energize the body or maintain the body's normal pH balance or helps heal candida infections. Any product that promises so much and makes claims about uh, non-existent conditions such as imbalanced body pH has to be looked at very skeptically. So what are we talking about here? Well, truthfully, we could be talking about dozens of dietary supplements that make these claims. But in this particular case, 
uh, it is about methyl sulfonylmethane. Well, the champion of this substance, Dr. Stanley Jacob of Oregon Health Science University, who caught the public's attention with his book, The Miracle of MSM. Well, of course, as soon as you see a title like that, The Miracle, uh, you know that that uh, uh, you better be somewhat skeptical about that. I mean, it, miracles just don't occur. Uh, Jacob, obviously, was not a modest man, calling his book The Miracle of MSM. So what is this miracle? Where does it come from? Basically, it originates in the oceans of the world. Underwater volcanic activity releases various sulfur compounds, hydrogen sulfide in particular, that are absorbed by algae. These in turn convert the sulfur compounds to dimethyl sulfide, which is released and escapes into the atmosphere where it reacts with oxygen to produce methyl sulfonylmethane or MSM. Now, some MSM promoters make the ludicrous assertion that this somehow helps restore the ozone layer. Anyway, the MSM then dissolves in rainwater and gets incorporated into plants so that virtually all foods contain trace amounts of this chemical. That's why it can be sold as a dietary supplement. So much for the facts. Well, now for the hype. According to the marketers of MSM, this compound is a vital source of sulfur for the body. They claim that modern processing depletes MSM in food and would therefore require supplements. Sulfur is essential for the synthesis of numerous proteins and enzymes. That's what they say, and deficiencies in these can cause various ailments. Well, some of this is true. We do need sulfur, but we do not require MSM as its source. There are plenty of sulfur-containing amino acids in our diet. We do not suffer from sulfur deficiency. Furthermore, the claim that processing food destroys its sulfur content is just plain ridiculous. To be fair, just because the rationale behind taking MSM is pure nonsense, we cannot assume that the health claims are not true. This stuff may work through some other unrecognized mechanism. There's only one way we can judge whether the claims are true or not. Are there any proper published controlled studies that show efficacy? Well, unfortunately, the answer is no. A search of the medical literature does not reveal a single such study that shows effectiveness for any condition. But surfing the web does turn up the usual accounts of miraculous recoveries from all sorts of ailments. But I'm not impressed by anecdotal accounts. Neither is the FDA in the U.S., which has sent letters of warning to several distributors of MSM, warning them to desist from making unsupported claims. Frankly, the only aspect of MSM that seems somewhat impressive is its use by horse trainers who claim that it keeps their animals' joints healthy. Well, I, I kind of pay attention to that because these guys are not into throwing money away, so they probably do see some results. It's therefore possible that there may be some human benefit as well. I just wish someone would mount a proper study. Uh, but uh, MSM uh, seems to be remarkably safe, 
people have taken large doses, much as five grams a day without any complication. But there's nothing but anecdotal evidence to support it. But I know that there are some, you know, people desperate with their joint aches, etc., cetera, uh, who try this. I, I wish I could give them more than anecdotal evidence to justify trying this substance. So at this point, uh, I would say that, that uh, most of the claims have no substance at all. But the, the fact that uh, it may be of some help in horses with their joints, racehorses, that, that is interesting. And uh, I, I would not rule out that it could do some good for people. I just wish that there were some, you know, documented studies that, that show that. But uh, as I mentioned, uh, all of this discussion was uh, triggered by, uh, you know, the uh, eye drops uh, that uh, are sold on the internet with claims that they somehow improve the health of the eye, that uh, you can absorb nutrients into your eye more readily if you put these MSM drops in it. And just like there's no evidence for the other claims that I, I mentioned, there's absolutely no evidence for uh, any benefit to the eye. So this is one area where uh, taking a risk with the bacteria contaminant is, is not worthwhile. I mean, in other conditions, you know, you might take some sort of a, a risk using a, such a product uh, if there were some evidence for benefit, but there's no evidence for any benefit to the eye. So that's the story of MSM, methyl sulfonyl methane. Most of it, the anecdotal stuff is unreliable, uh, is overhyped. There may be something to the joint pain. I don't know. Hopefully we'll see some study sometime. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Grade A milk emulsified, maltodextrin alkalide, silicon dioxalide, lots of sugar. Hey, all right. Calcified synthetic salt, artificial barley malt, glycerin, and aspartate, folic acid. That tastes great. Monosodium glutamate, dehydrated calcium. So I see that uh, many of you have let your fingers dance on the keyboard and have um, come up with the correct answer for the German scientist who I was after who I said is the father of uh, the quantum theory and whose twin daughters both died in childbirth. His son was executed for his part in assassination of Hitler. Uh, another interesting thing is his first wife died. The, the wife with whom he had these children died before the children died. And that, of course, was Max Planck. Uh, Max Planck, uh, together with uh, Heisenberg, uh, regarded as the founders of the uh, quantum theory. But what a tragedy to have twin daughters both die in uh, childbirth. And his son uh, executed uh, for a plot and failed assassination of Hitler. Uh, Planck himself said that he tried to convince Hitler not to 
kick out the Jewish scientists from all of the uh, universities. Uh, it's questionable whether or not he did that. That uh, he, he, he himself wrote that uh, after the war, uh, but um, questionable that he ever really tried to, to do that. And uh, James has also come uh, through with the uh, correct answer to the question about the drug that was discovered when cows died from being fed moldy sweet clover. And it is one of the most commonly used drugs in the world. We're talking about warfarin or coumadin, which is its trade name. It's an anticoagulant. Well, it turns out that sweet clover contains a compound called coumarin, naturally occurring. And that is what gives it the sweet scent. And it's called sweet clover because of the scent, not because of any any taste. Well, it turns out that there's a, a kind of mold that can infect sweet clover. And that mold secretes an enzyme that changes the coumarin into dicoumarol. And that is an anticoagulant. It causes hemorrhaging. And these cows were bleeding to death the inside. Well, it turned out that a farmer who was afflicted by his dairy cows dying, put a dead cow into his truck, put some of the feed into his truck, and uh, drove in a blizzard about 200 miles to the University of Wisconsin to, cons to consult uh, Professor Carl Link, who was an agricultural chemist, who he thought might be able to help. Well, it turned out that actually Link was able to help because he knew uh, already about this business with a sweet clover. He knew that a Canadian veterinarian actually had explored this problem before and uh, discovered that the problem was sweet clover, although he didn't understand the chemistry. He didn't go into it in depth. But Link uh, decided that this was a time to investigate this further. And eventually, uh, one of his students was able to isolate from the sweet clover this compound uh, di dicumerol, and it became uh, a commercial anticoagulant because it reduced the risk of someone who had a heart attack having a second heart attack or a stroke because both strokes and heart attacks are uh, caused by uh, blood clots. The only problem was that this compound dicumerol uh, was... Um, uh, not all that steadfast, and, and uh, it would quickly break down during storage. So what happens in situations like that, when you have a drug that seems to be working, but there's a but with it, uh, then uh, pharmaceutical chemists try to uh, fiddle around with the molecular structure of the molecule to see if they can eliminate the problems and still retain the benefits. So... Uh, Link and his colleagues synthesized over a hundred analogs of dicumerol, and one of these turned out to be really superior, and that is what eventually became warfarin, or trade name coumadin, which was much longer lasting. It didn't break down as as easily, and uh, uh, became uh, one of the most widely sold uh, drugs in the world. It is still a very, very popular uh, drug, although there are other versions of these anticoagulants uh, uh, you know, that, that uh, are now uh, supplanting it. But nevertheless, it is the uh, prototype 
and uh, works very well. The only thing is that uh, anyone who's prescribed it uh, has to have constant blood tests to make sure that the levels of, uh, of Coumadin are, are, are just right. Otherwise, it may not protect or it may cause uh, hemorrhage. So uh, it's not the kind of thing where you take it once and you forget about it. But some of the uh, newer drugs in the same category of anticoagulants are, are better in that you don't have to go on you know, testing uh, uh, continuously about whether or not the blood levels are right. Uh, it um, uh, turns out also that when you're on Coumadin, you have to be careful with uh, uh, overdoing uh, broccoli, spinach, uh, some of these brassica vegetables, as they called, because they contain vitamin K. And vitamin K is uh, a clotting factor, so it will counter the effects of, of Coumadin. Uh, that happens in theory. There are uh, very, very few recorded cases where this has actually happened, because you'd have to eat really a lot of broccoli and a lot of spinach to have enough vitamin K in order to counter the effects of, uh, of Coumadin. But anyone who is prescribed Coumadin is told uh, that uh, uh, they should not alter their diet in terms of eating any more of broccoli or spinach than uh, what they are used to uh, eating. But it's interesting that, you know, from a uh, farmer uh consulting a biochemist at University of Wisconsin uh, because his cows were dying, we have the development of this uh, very, very useful uh, drug. So you never know where drug discoveries are going to come from. Uh, many of them come about in some sort of accidental fashion. I mean, of course, we all know the classic story of, of penicillin uh, when a mold drifted into Alexander Fleming's Petri dish and he noticed that the bacteria around the periphery of the mold were dying. And uh, most people, of course, would have looked at it and said, gee, you know, I better start this experiment over again. But he realized that the bacteria were being killed around the mold and that there was something being produced by this mold that was deadly to bat bacteria. Eventually, the substance penicillin was isolated 10 years later by Chaim and Flory, and uh, they shared the Nobel Prize with uh, with Fleming for discovery of the most important one of the most important drugs. Uh, other accident discoveries, Viagra is another classic example, because Viagra was first uh, used as a a drug to treat heart disease, but then uh, men who were using Viagra noticed that uh, there was a certain side effect associated with it. And in that case, they judged that side effect to be beneficial. And of course, when the company learned about this, uh, they capitalized on it. And all of a sudden, it became the classic drug for erectile dysfunction. And again, one of the most widely sold uh, drugs in the world. Well, that's it for today. We have run out of time. Uh, let me remind you once again to check out our website, mcgill.ca slash OSS, for all the latest scientific news and some neat stories. And uh, you can also take a look at the information about the upcoming Chartier Public Science Symposium. And if you want to join us, just click the button so we'll know how many people are coming. 
Other than that, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>